In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So with the number of sermons that I've preached uh, in my tenure as a clergy person, I'm in this interesting sweet spot. There are few enough that I remember a lot of them, and yet I've preached often enough that sometimes I preach on the same week of the liturgical year, three years later, giving me the exact same texts. This is just one of those weeks. And as an interesting contrast, three liturgical years ago on Trinity 7, year B, of the three-year lectionary rotation, the Supreme Court was also in the news. It had been less than a month since the Oberfeld v. Hodges decision, which gave same-sex marriages equal status, equal status as traditional marriages. And it caused quite the hubbub then, as I'm sure you remember. And here we are, three liturgical years later, and again, the Supreme Court is in national news, and many Christians are talking about things like control of the courts. Now, whenever national events entice us to contemplate our place in the halls of national power. I think it should cause us as Christians to think through what our relationship is to the state and what it looks like for the church to be the peculiar people that we're called to be. And it's this question of our corporate identity that Paul addresses in the opening of his letter to the Ephesians. He greets the believers in Ephesus with thanks to God for what God has done through Christ, namely that God chose us before the foundation of the world and will sort out what that choosing means some other time, to be a holy and blameless people, that God formed this people for himself, created them by his own will. As the letter goes on, Paul will talk about taking two families, that is, the Gentiles and the Jews, and making one new family of God, made not through political will or bloodlines, but through the blood of Christ. If you look at the cryptic minimum Bible images in our undercroft, You'll see that the designer took on this basic motif as the image for Paul's letter. These two families became becoming a one new family. God redeemed these people not just for their own sake, but they were chosen like Israel to be part of God's redemptive plan for the cosmos, that they might, as Paul says, live for the praise of his glory. This new family lives in an already but not yet state. Their sins have been forgiven, but they also have a future inheritance, the down payment of which is the Holy Spirit, that seal that marks God's people. Paul is describing us, the church, God's chosen people, as the beginning of what God intends to do for the whole world, to redeem, renew, and gather up all things in Christ. Paul's encouragement is for the believers in Ephesus to lean in and live into this inheritance. But in our reading from, reading from Amos, we don't see the people of God living out God's call on their lives but instead we see God's response to Israel's failure to do so. The book opens with a list of nations around Israel whose sins God will no longer overlook. And then the list flows naturally into Israel and Judah. It's actually a common theme in the Bible. The people of God, instead of being a light for the nations, become darkened themselves, needing light to come to them. And if you think this is just an Old Testament phenomenon that after Christ were much better, flip on over to 1 Corinthians and see how the church fared on that front. In response to their unfaithfulness, Amos describes two visions of coming judgment that God relents from. Amos says, but Jacob is so small and God relents. But then in this third vision, which we read this morning, there is this plumb line, an objective tool to measure Israel. The plumb line hangs and it tells you what is a right angle, what is straight, and it's how you measure buildings. It's how you know whether or not a building is true. And so Israel, when put up against this plumb line, could no longer escape justice. God says, I will never again pass them by. Unlike the first Passover, 
when God saw the blood of the lamb and passed over Israelite homes, this judgment was going to fall upon Israel as well. Now the text then steps out of Amos' vision to describe the response from the temple prophet of Israel, Amaziah, who responds that Amos' words are just too harsh. The people of Israel can't withstand this. Amaziah was like many other prophets of the day who worked in the courts of kings and told them what they wanted to hear. And so harsh words were unwelcome, certainly not how you got to get a job in those highest courts or get seats at anyone's table. So Amaziah tells Amos, go back to Judah, eat your bread there, go work in somebody else's palace court. But Amos is no professional prophet. He's a shepherd. He was burdened by God to give a message. And that message would be heard popular or not. Amos's calling was like that of many Old Testament prophets, whose ministry is then summed up in the work of John the Baptist, speaking truth to power, as it were. And in that task, John was a thorn in Herod's side. Herod had taken his brother's wife, and John was publicly and prophetically denouncing it. Herod's wife Herodias was understandably upset about this, hated John, and wanted him dead. But Herod, as the text says, liked to listen to him. He had this complicated relationship with John. And I think in the end, having John in prison was a best-case scenario for Herod. Because on one hand, John isn't out there proclaiming to the world that his marriage was unlawful. And on the other hand, he doesn't have to kill John, who has a lot of popularity with people and whom he apparently liked. This is what power does. It causes Herod to pursue whatever keeps him in the place of privilege. Herod will do whatever it takes to maintain a status quo. The same can be said for Amos' audience. When Israel was an agrarian nation, successful farmers were expected to loan to less successful farmers and exercise charity. And then a network of extended family would allow for those who fell on hard times to have resources and support. But John Goldengate points out that the development of the state and urbanization led to a failure of this system. This interconnected web broke down. And those who were well off took over the lands of people who had failed in their farming endeavors using those people as a way to make money rather than working to help them out of their poverty. And so over time, a system had come into place that caused oppression, where the poor were no longer helped but were oppressed. Now, I'm not an economist, and so this is not by any means a treatise on economics. God help us. What is important to note, though, is that in both the cases of Herod and Israel, the thing that is called out is not necessarily evil mustachioed villains coming out and preying on the weak out of a love of oppression just because they like suffering. It was the allure of power taking control and causing people to pursue their own well-being and status at the cost of others instead of living out a calling for the sake of others. Systemic problems don't come with giant turns. They come one degree at a time. And without any self-reflection, a people can find themselves in a very different place than where they might intend. And when that self-reflection doesn't happen, we get the prophets. The ministry of the prophets is a call to repentance, to turn from destructive patterns of sin, patterns that are, are destructive to self and to society, and turn towards God. We read about John's ministry at the beginning of Mark's gospel, that his baptism of repentance was the making straight of the way of the Lord that was promised in Isaiah. That's how Mark opens his gospel with this quote from Isaiah and then says, John is baptizing in the wilderness with this baptism of repentance. Repentance is the means by which God changes us and prepares us for what he intends to do, whether that plan was to restore Israel or to inaugurate the new kingdom. And so while three years ago, as I'm sure you all remember so clearly, in my sermon, I exhorted you to speak truth to power. 
I think this morning I'd like us to reflect on the fact that maybe the power to which truth must be spoken is us. Just before Amos' message that we heard today, he pronounced woe to Israel because they felt secure in where they were. But in that security, they had ignored the poor in their midst, who were being sold into slavery and denied legal representation. The deceptive poison of systemic problems like these are that you can very easily contribute to the problem without taking any conscious, oppressive actions yourself. All it takes is indifference. And for the people of God who were chosen and formed to be the first fruits of the new, new kingdom, given the down payment of the inheritance of the new creation by means of the Holy Spirit, indifference is defiance, is abandonment of our calling. A lifestyle that puts self first, that says, as long as me and my family are all right, all is well. One that thinks about our own nation to the exclusion of others. A lifestyle that's content with violence as long as it's somewhere else. That's a lifestyle that ignores and rejects the calling to be the people of King Jesus, in whom all things will be and even now are being brought together and made new. So I want to think this morning about corporate repentance. That's not corporate repentance in the sense of corporations. It's a sense of communal repentance. You may think about confession as an act in which you apologize for the things you did as an individual. But you'll notice in a few minutes that while we confess the creed in the singular, I believe, we confess our sins in the plural. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And if the liturgy isn't good enough for you, which makes you a bad Anglican, but maybe a good Protestant, think of Isaiah's words when he receives this vision of the throne of God in Isaiah 6. We know it relatively well. There's the angels with the six wings. And Isaiah says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people. Isaiah is a prophet to those people, and yet when encountered with God, he senses the need for corporate repentance. Jesus' own baptism is an act of corporate repentance, stepping into the Jordan River not as Jesus the individual from Nazareth who knew no sin, but as Jesus the Messiah, the true representative Israelite. And if Jesus isn't too good to engage in acts of corporate repentance, you aren't too good for it either. And if I may be so bold, I might call to mind a few of our corporate sins, each of them having to do with our need to hold on to power, whatever the cost. A little over a decade ago, scandal hit the Roman Catholic Church as abuse committed by priests was uncovered. And we, over in Protestant evangelical land, looked across the Tiber sadly at how far that church had strayed and how much they had worked to keep those sins from seeing the light of day. Maybe it's celibate priests, we said. Good thing our pastors can marry. We don't have that problem in our house. And now our own sin is open for all to see. It turns out the churches in our part of the ecumenical world have been insisting on maintaining the status quo and stability of power and allowed leaders to abuse those in their care without consequence or accountability. And it wasn't journalists who uncovered our sins, but brave victim after brave victim who stood up and said, me too. In whatever degree we have enabled decades of abuse to exist within our evangelical walls, may God have mercy on us. That's just one of our sins of omission. But there are sins of commission as well, including the ways in which we, the church, consider power and privilege a thing to be grasped. The way of the world is to look for how to get power and lord it over people, and if we can't grasp it ourselves, we'll look for stronger, more influential people to grab it for us, no matter who they are. I think too often we find ourselves wondering whether it's Herod or Pilate who will best serve the interests of the church when Jesus has been, has been in our midst the whole time. And let's leave modern political parties out of it. There's this notion of the culture war in which we try and exert our influence on the world 
primarily through laws, both laws of the nation and laws of societal norms, wherever we can enforce them. And that may have been a fool's errand in the first place. Now, in sermons, you get to make stronger statements than you would normally in conversation without any caveats. So let me say this. There might be nothing more Christ-like than for us to decide to lose the culture war, to put down our arms and say, this is not the way that makes for peace. The hearts and lives of our neighbors can't be won through power. They must be won through sacrifice, at least if Jesus is our model. So maybe we can start to learn how to do that a little more, to say, me second, my family second, America second. Because so often we try to win this war by creating unholy alliances and compromises, by making deals. And making deals might be good politics. In fact, I think it probably is, but it's a pretty poor witness. And the number of Faustian bargains Christians have taken in order to try and gain the power to exert our will on our neighbor is tragic. I'll read some Stanley Hauerwas to drive the point home. On August 6, 1945, the first atomic bomb was dropped on a Japanese city. Turning to a group of sailors with him on the battlecruiser Augusta, President Truman said, this is the greatest thing in history. Truman, once described as an outstanding Baptist layman, was supported by the majority of American Christians who expressed few misgivings about the bomb. The bomb, however, was the sign of our moral incapacitation, an open admission that we had lost the will and the resources to resist vast evil. Obliteration bombing of civilian pop populations had come to be seen as a military necessity. A terrible evil had been defended as a way to a greater good. After the bomb, all sorts of moral compromises were easier. Nearly two million abortions a year seemed a mere matter of freedom of choice, and the plight of the poor in the world's richest nation was a matter of economic necessity. The project, begun at the time of Constantine to enable Christians to share power without being a problem for the powerful, had reached its most impressive fruition. If Caesar can get Christians there to swallow the ultimate solution and Christians here to embrace the bomb, there is no limit to what we will not do for the modern world. Alas, in leaning over to speak to the modern world, we had fallen in. We had lost the theological resources to resist, lost the resources even to see that there was something worth resisting." Unquote. I think in an attempt to create and sustain the myth of a Christian nation, we've done something pretty terrible. So let's demolish that myth. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. It didn't exist in the year 800 when Charlemagne was crowned the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy Roman nor an empire. It didn't exist in 1534 when Henry VIII declared himself to be the head of the Church of England. And it didn't exist in 1776 when a band of rebels declared life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to be God-endowed rights. There is no Christian nation, but there is a people of God. There is a group of people called and formed and chosen from every nation of the earth before the foundation of the world to be a salt and light of the earth a people who belong to everyone and swear allegiance to no one except their King Jesus, whose reign we don't usher in. We simply observe and declare. May God forgive our inaction and ignorance to those people and places where oppression and violence against the poor and vulnerable still reign supreme, especially as it has existed within our own walls. May God forgive our action taken rashly and taken in lockstep with the princes and powers of this world, where we've made concession after concession in an attempt to recreate whatever parts of the world we can get our hands on in our own image. May God forgive us in the ways we long to form ourselves into a kingdom of this world. 
May he give us eyes to see and hearts of compassion for the needs of the world around us, wisdom and creativity to know how to be Christ-like in our service, emptying ourselves and giving up whatever power we think we have for the sake of others. May he strengthen us to go out to our neighbors, our communities, and our world to declare the good news that these kingdoms will waste away, and one day a perfect kingdom will arrive, and all things will finally be finished being made new. Amen.